Welcome to the PD tour of the Francis Marion Trail podcast, following the driving trails developed by the Francis Marion Trail Commission in South Carolina. You'll hear stories of the Swamp Fox, the Revolutionary War hero, General Francis Marion. The podcast is a creation of the Florence Convention and Visitors Bureau with adaptations of stories collected by the Francis Marion Trail Commission. Some are historical accounts and others may be folklore. We'll let you listen and decide. This episode can be enjoyed while driving to Black Mingo Creek near Neesmith, South Carolina. Weems Foray and the Hanging of Adam Cusack In their efforts to pacify the Carolina backcountry, the harsh tactics of the British often had the opposite of their desired effects. Bitterness and anger rose, more families took up arms against the king, and stories of British atrocities became grist for the Whig propaganda mill. The foray of Major James Weems and his 63rd Regiment into the area between the Santee and the PD in August and September 1780 provides one example of their failed strategy and its long life in local lore. Marion's victories at Sumter's house and the Blue Savannah in August 1780 first surprised and then angered the British. To protect Georgetown, the anchor of their right flank, Colonel Balfour called in British regulars and Loyalist militias as reinforcements and ordered improvements to the seaport's defenses. Lord Cornwallis also acted swiftly. He knew that a victorious band of guerrillas astride the long supply line between Camden and Charleston would be fatal. As soon as he learned of Marion's strike at Sumter's house, he ordered Major James Weems to march the 63rd Regiment from the, hills, from the high hills to King Street. Quote, I should advise your sweeping the country entirely from Cring Street Bridge, he went on. I would have you disarm in the most rigid manner all persons who cannot be depended on and punish the concealment of arms and ammunition with a total demolition of the plantation. Without exact knowledge of Marion's strength, but knowing the 63rd Regiment was weak from malaria, Cornwallis ordered all available Loyalist forces to cooperate in the movement. According to legend, facing a march of 150 miles, Weems decided to mount his regiment. Calling together all the Whig planters in the high hills, he lectured them for an hour while his troops scoured the area, rounding up their horses. When the planters discovered the rustling, they protested vigorously, but in vain. The horses were in British corrals and heavily guarded. The enraged countrymen walked home, said David Ramsey. But soon after, many of them repaired to General Marion. As Weems marched towards King Street, Marion's men captured and questioned a member of his rear guard. Learning of the movements of Weems' men, the other British and Loyalist units, Marion realized his 60 men were facing some thousand to 1,500 adversaries. Rather than fight against impossible odds, he chose to retreat into North Carolina. In Williamsburg, meanwhile, Major Weems and Captain Amos Gaskins, a local loyalist, were attempting to disable the rebel movement, targeting the homes of Whig militiamen. Local lore holds that Weems ordered the burning of the Presbyterian church at Indian Town, saying, This is a sedition shop. However, personal and church records indicate that Weems himself, like most of Scots of his day, was a lifelong Presbyterian. At the home of Major John James... One of Marion's officers, he held Mrs. James and her children hostage for two days, hoping that Major James would come to his family. The father failed to appear, but Weems sent a patrol to the home of Captain John James, his son, to take him into custody. The younger James had been paroled after the fall of Charleston, but he had taken up arms back home in Williamsburg. He was so outraged at the treatment of his mother and siblings that he had fired on a small party of Tories riding McGill's plantation. If he is found to have broken his parole, the major swore, he will be hanged in the morning to yonder tree. 
The next morning, Weems held an impromptu court-martial. Neither the members of the James family nor their slaves could or would testify. Weems was forced to release them all, but he burned the house and the elder James in retaliation. William Devine James, another son who at age 15 was among Marion's men and would go on to author one of the most valuable accounts of General's career, wrote later of the consequences of the arson. He said, I felt an early inclination to record these events, but Major Weems burnt all my stock of paper and my little classical library in my father's house, and, and for two years and a half afterwards, I had not the common implements of writing or of reading. Under the guidance of local Tories, Weems' men burned a swath 15 miles wide along the 70-mile route from King Street to Shiraw. Believing that the way to suppress the rebellion was to hang the leaders and destroy the resources of the rebels, he ordered his men to break up the looms, fire the grist mills, and destroy the blacksmith shops. To deprive the Whigs of the means of existence, he had his troops shoot milk cows and bayonet the sheep. At the same time, Marion's men were exacting similar punishment on Loyalist homes. In a report to Cornwallis, he said that the rebels were, quote, burning houses and distressing the well-affected in a most severe manner. Several people from that country have been with me to represent their distressed situation. The Highlanders in particular, who are very numerous here, have been treated with such cruelty and oppression as almost exceeds belief. In the fall of 1780, the bitter civil war in the South Carolina backcountry touched many families on both sides of the political divide. Weems certainly targeted the homes of Whig leaders and militiamen and sought to punish those who defied the British. According to local lore, one such Whig supporter was Adam Cusack, who had been paroled at Charleston and returned to his home. Cusack had refused to ferry some British officers across the Black Creek. Resentful, he later shot across the creek at a slave of Captain John Brockington, a Tory from King Street, and missed. Weems ordered his arrest. Cusack was tried in a court-martial, found guilty of breaking his parole by resorting to firearms and sentenced to death. Weems ordered a scaffold built beside the road at Long Bluff and personally supervised the execution. William Dobine James recounts that Cusack's wife and children prostrated themselves before Weems on horseback for a pardon, and he would have ridden over them had not one of his own officers prevented the foul deed. Just before the soldiers tripped the platform under the prisoner, James Wilson, a local physician, attempted to intercede. As punishment for this offense, Weems later destroyed much of Wilson's property and burned his home. After his wife sought safety in North Carolina, Wilson joined Marion's band. Some of the more dramatic details of the story, as recorded by James, may have been added for Whig propaganda purposes. Shortly after the publication of James' book, Weems made his own statement about the Cusack incident from his home on Long Island, New York. He said, Although much property was destroyed in the execution of the above orders, his August 28th orders from Cornwallis, it ever affords Colonel Weems the greatest satisfaction on reflecting that one man only suffered death. He was a native of England and was particularly distinguished for cruelty and persecution of every loyalist in that part of the country. The day before he was taken, he attempted to kill an officer of the loyal militia on his way to join Colonel Weems' detachment and took from him a valuable horse. On September 20th, Weems reported to Lord Cornwallis from Shiraw, I have done everything in my power to get a Mr. Marion, who with Giles commanded about 150 on my arrival in this part of the country. 
although I never could come up with them, yet I pushed them so hard as in great measure to break them up. The few that still continued together have retreated over Little P.D. Surveying the state of the rebellion in the district between the Santee and the P.D., he stated that almost every family was involved. He added that he had burnt and laid waste about 50 houses and plantations, mostly belonging to people who have either broke their paroles or oaths of allegiance and are now in arms against us, he said. Weems admitted that his activities had won few friends for Great Britain. He told his commander that the area cannot be kept by militia, but would instead need regular troops to control the rebellion. Cornwallis, assessing the negative impact of Weems' foray, confided to an associate and said, I am much disappointed in that business. Battle of Black Mingo. Payback for Barbarity. Francis Marion and a small group of militia were camped at White Marsh, North Carolina, in late September 1780. Marion's group had been forced to retreat there because a much larger force of Loyalists and British had been sent to destroy them. However, the British and Loyalists had been unable to locate and destroy Marion's little force. Marion learned that British forces under Colonel Weems had destroyed many Patriot houses and farms in an area 70 miles long and 15 miles wide in Williamsburg, and that there were many in the Low Country who were angry and discontented who might join him. The Swamp Fox decided to re-enter South Carolina. The following story, written by historian James A. Rogers, describes how a rickety bridge taught Marion a lesson about stealth. Black Mingo Creek flows into Black River at the river's big bend where it turns southeast and flows toward its confluence with the Great P.D. River above Georgetown. A few miles above Shepherd's Ferry, approximately where South Carolina Highway 52 today crosses Black Mingo Creek. Above Shepherd's Ferry was loose and riggedy Willtown Bridge. Beyond the bridge, west of Black Mingo, was a Red Horse Tavern operated by Patrick Dollard. At this tavern in 1780, a 15-minute battle was fought between Francis Marion's militia and Tory loyalists commanded by John Cumming Ball. It was Marion's second encounter in a pitched battle with the loyalists since he took command of four companies of Williamsburg militia on Lynch's Creek to form the nucleus of what was known in Revolutionary War history as Marion's Brigade. The first was at Blue Savannah west of the Little PD, down from what is now known as Ariel's Crossroads. In that battle, he had defeated Mikhajagany's Tories, then had withdrawn to the safety of an encampment in the Great White Marsh inside North Carolina to escape being taken by Major Weems. Intelligence revealed that Weems had crossed Lynch's River and was moving in on Marion's front. Leaving Major John James with ten picked men to remain in the area and gather further intelligence, Marion dismissed many of his men, spiked his two artillery pieces, and then left them in the river swamp to prevent being weighted down by excess baggage. Then, early in September, had moved to the safety of the Great White Marsh in what is now known as Columbus County, North Carolina. Shortly thereafter, he learned through Major James that Weems had spread desolation in the Williamsburg district along the Black, Lynch's, and Petey Rivers. The extent of that desolation was contained in a report by Weems made on September 20th. Weems boasted of having desolated 50 homes and plantations, slaughtered cattle and sheep, and hanged men believed to have violated their paroles. The report so infuriated Marion that he determined to return to, at once to South Carolina. On the afternoon of September 24th, he left his camp in the White Marsh, and on the following afternoon rode in, into Kingston, now Conway. There he encamped for the night on Waccamaw River. The next morning they galloped westward toward the Little P.D., swam their horse across the river, and entered Britain's Neck. Along their journey, a fast-riding horseman approached from the rear. He was Captain George Logan, whom Marion had left at the White March camp, under the care of 15-year-old William Dobine James, later to become Judge James. 
Logan was too sick to travel when Marion left camp, but recovery was speedy, and Logan mounted his horse to join the action. At Ports Ferry above present Johnsonville, Marion crossed the PD on flatboats on September 28th and late that afternoon passed over Lynch's River at Witherspoon's Ferry, near where the Lynch's empties into the PD at Snows Island. Across Lynch's, they were joined by 10 men under Captain John James, also by some volunteer militia under Captain Henry Muzan and Lieutenant John Scott. From them, he learned that Tory militia under Colonel John Cumming Bell were at Shepherd's Ferry on Black Mingo Creek. Marion boldly led his men toward Black Mingo. About midnight, they slipped across the creek at Willtown Bridge. The horse's hooves rumbled the loose planks and alerted one of Ball's sentinels, who fired an alarm. Hearing it, Marion's men spurred their horses and rode swiftly toward the Red Horse Tavern. At the post road 300 yards from Shepherd's Ferry, Marion ordered a small unit to act as cavalry and the rest to dismount and serve as foot soldiers. He then instructed officers without command to demonstrate in front of the tavern. Other orders were for Hugh Ory to lead the foot soldiers in an attack on the right flank and the mounted men to attack on the left. Marion himself remained behind with a small reserve to render aid where needed. But Colonel Ball was also ready and for attack. Upon hearing his sentinel fire, the warning shot, he had quickly awakened his men and deployed them in a field west of the Red Horse Tavern. He wanted to avoid being caught in the tavern with no escape route left open to him. While Marion's men moved in the darkness, Ball moved among his men with instructions to hold their fire until given the order. Out in front, Ori's infantry trotted into the field, their feet making crunching sounds in the darkness. At thirty yards' distance, Ball gave the order to fire. The sound of muskets broke the silence like a sudden clap of thunder in the night. Captain Logan, the man who had left his sick bed at White Marsh and rushed sixty miles to catch up to Marion, fell dead. Captain Morgan and Lieutenant Scott crashed to the ground, wounded. It was a critical moment for Marion, but Captain James stepped into the breach. Rallying both his men and those of the fallen Muzan, he ordered them to move forward cautiously, seeking cover where they could find it. As they moved, the officers without command struck at Ball's right flank. Now attacked on both sides, Ball's men returned a scattering fire, then broke and fled into the Black Mingo swamps. The route was complete. In describing it later, Ori said, They would not halt a moment at Georgetown, though twenty miles from the field of battle, but they continued their flight, not thinking themselves safe until they got the Santee River between them. It was a fierce little battle, but fifteen minutes duration fought at such close range that, according to Peter Ori, wads fell on either side. The brave Captain Logan was dead. Captain Muzan and Lieutenant Scott were so gravely wounded that they could fight no more for the rest of the war. Besides Logan, only one other of Marion's men, a private, was killed. The Tory loss was three men killed and 13 others wounded or taken prisoner. Into Marion's hand fell a quantity of muskets, ammunition, and horses. Among the latter was Ball's own horse, which Marion took for himself, named him Ball, and rode throughout the rest of his campaigns. Blue Savannah and Black Mingo had fixed the style of warfare Marion would follow to the end of the war. The quick, sudden blow, the ambush where possible, the use of night rides and swamp cover to hide his movements until the moment of truth arrived. But Black Mingo had also taught him a lesson. Thereafter, when crossing bridges near an enemy force, he would either pad the bridge with blankets or muffle the hoofs horses by tying cloth around them. A horse named Ball. The horse's hooves rattled loudly on the planks of the old bridge crossing Black Mingo Creek at Willtown, about one mile upstream from Dollard's Red Horse Tavern at Shepherd's Ferry. A Tory sentry at the tavern 
heard the commotion and fired a warning shot in the air. The Swamp Fox and his militia, on a midnight raid of Tories camped at the tavern, had lost the element of surprise. The Tory leader, Colonel John Cumming Ball, quickly positioned his men near the tavern for the attack he knew was only minutes away. Marion's horsemen quickly covered the distance from the Willtown Bridge and positioned themselves to attack the Tories on three sides, leaving only escape down into a swamp and then into Black Mingo Creek open to them. About 15 minutes after the noisy bridge crossing, Marion's troops charged the Tory positions in what was to be one of the most vicious battles the militia would fight. The Swamp Fox and his men drove the British down the slope at Shepherd's Ferry into the swampy area below and then into the deep, dark waters of Black Mingo Creek. Weapons, ammunition, valuable baggage, and horses were the spoils seized by the militia. This victory was payback for the destruction and misery caused by the British and their Tory allies in a vast swath of Williamsburg. But the best was yet to come. Some of the militia discovered that Colonel John Ball had escaped the fracas by fleeing into the swamp and disappearing into Black Mingo Creek. However, Colonel Ball's fine horse was found without its master. When the militia presented this great horse to Marion, the Swamp Fox cheekily renamed him Ball in an honor of his former owner and rode the stead for the remainder of the war. All this goes to show that the Swamp Fox had a keen eye for fine horse flesh and an even keener sense of humor. Willtown, only a memory. Alternately referred to as Black Mingo and as Willtown, this small South Carolina community has a unique, if uncertain, creation story. The Willtown story suffers from a lack of distinct facts and indeed of any concrete critical writings or studies on its character or inhabitants. Such lack of focus is evident by the fact that Willtown is labeled at once as both low country and back country and in written accounts defies a comfortable label in South Carolina's historiographical dichotomy. It is further noted that Willtown was situated between the coast and the interior, and its rise and fall reflects the struggle of a region located on the fringe of Lowcountry society. Willtown may have begun life as an outpost, offering commodities and service for area plantations and settlers. From the beginning, though, it was clear the distinction was not to be a characteristic of Willtown. When in 1744 an act was passed by the Colonial Assembly to build a bridge across the north branch of Black River, the very location of the river was misidentified as within the parish of Prince George Winya. Despite inexactness, however, by 1773, Willtown had established a reputation as a transportation hub, through which traders must travel in order to get from the backcountry to the coastal regions of the Lowcountry. Prior to the Revolution, Willtown was profited greatly from naval stores and indigo production. By the time of the Revolution, Willtown had established itself as a thriving community. Colonel Benaster Tarleton would change all of that, however, as he swept through the area in an effort to strike terror to the inhabitants. Tarleton wanted cooperation from the residents and was prepared to punish resistance. The British Army was reported as having committed outrage and cruelty beyond description. Tarleton was not alone in these acts. Major James Weems was tasked with completing the work Tarleton had left undone. He is reported to have burned a path through the heart of Georgetown District, destroying plantations and Presbyterian churches alike, the latter of which he deemed sedition shops. During the campaign, Weems burned Indiantown Church, set fire to private homes, and posted a detachment of 46 Loyalist troops at the Red House Tavern on the outskirts of Willtown. Such acts meant to show the strength and determination of the British Army only served to stoke the revolutionary spirit of the local inhabitants. General Francis Marion, joined by Captains John James and Henry Mazan, rode from the north toward Black Mingo in 1780 to confront the Tories. 
While crossing over a wooden plank bridge, the sound of approaching horsemen roused the enemy. Even with the advance warning, the British were no match for the Patriots, who secured the area in less than a half an hour. The years following the Revolution were difficult ones for Willtown, with the beginning of the end clearly delineated when in 1804 the South Carolina legislators split Georgetown District down the middle, leaving Willtown without its long-enjoyed strategic location. It was soon evident that falling water levels and a deteriorating bridge across Black Mingo Creek made navigation in the area impractical. With no new roads connecting Willtown to the public highways, there was little chance of the community's survival. By 1813, the village ceased to exist. At this time, you should be at or near your destination, Black Mingo, 